Well, thanks for joining us again. We're going to continue uh, looking at the news article that was that was passed to me that basically was looking at whether or not we can actually prevent type 2 diabetes. And if we can prevent it, why aren't we doing it? And there were basically four conclusions that were presented within this article, that there is somehow a personal responsibility that is either lacking or is not readily enforced. There are some sort of structural societal issues that come into play, that there is a lack of proper health education within the country as relates to the issues surrounding type 2 diabetes. And there is a cost issue as relates to healthy living. And what we have within this article is the same thing we see with a lot of the popular press as it relates to uh, type 2 diabetes. And it's really about oversimplification, a bias in recommendations that are being presented, and an really ignorance to some of the underlying issues that come into play. And it's not uh, where I'm saying ignorance in terms of a bad connotation as can be the case when we use the word ignorance. We're really talking about, we're talking about not being aware of underlying issues. And part of this has to do with the fact that we're constantly being bombarded with ideas and ideals about what is best. But the problem is, is that we're missing some of the key points within the arguments as to whether or not we're actually able to prevent type 2 diabetes. And so let's talk about those issues and let's see if we can figure out a way to better present what we need to present so that we're able to actually truly prevent type 2 diabetes, but more importantly, prevent many of the non-communicable lifestyle diseases that get lumped into the discussion about type 2 diabetes. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. And so when we're looking at the issues as relates to can we actually prevent type 2 diabetes, what we're really asking is can we prevent the issues as relates to overfatness? And one of the things that we seem to be stuck on when we're discussing the issues as it surrounds the issues of overfatness and can we actually go about preventing overfatness is what are some of the root causes for the issues of overfatness and the issues of health status changes that come about from changes in overfatness. And so as we were discussing previously, overfatness is an inflammation issue. It's an inflammation issue that comes about due to an imbalance between what is my nutrient intake relative to my nutrient expenditure. A lot of times this discussion comes into caloric balance, and we'll get to why that's a bad way of looking at this as we progress through the discussion here. What we're looking at is we're looking at an imbalance between what is the body using metabolically to maintain and grow tissues and what is my intake of those nutrients. That is one aspect of the entire aspect of everything which is why we cannot look at this issue in terms of a caloric balance issue as we have a misconception as to what caloric balance actually means as relates to what we intake as food. Not everything that we consume 
is going to go into my caloric balance because I'm going to need nutrients so as to be able to grow and maintain tissues. One of the big misconceptions as relates to nutrient balance and caloric balance pertains to the macronutrient protein. And when we look at the macronutrient protein, we need specific amounts of protein in order to maintain fat-free mass, in order to maintain the health and integrity of my skin, in order to allow for muscles to grow and bones to grow. And if I'm trying to be, and I don't like using the word, but we have to use the word because it's how it's discussed. If I want to be in a caloric restricted diet, if I want to be consuming less calories than what is being expended and is the bad way of looking at this. And we'll talk about this as we get into the get bit quick schemes that are out there. If I'm not consuming enough protein in my diet, the body's going to start to break down the fat-free tissues, the muscle, the bone. It's going to have a reduction in the quality of keratin production within the skin, which is going to lead to skin issues, which is why when we start looking at particularly uh, individuals following specific types of diet, the vegans and the vegetarians, one of the things that we want to look at is if they're getting enough high quality protein, is are they able to grow nails and grow hair and maintain the hair and nail growth? Where if I'm not getting the correct amount of protein or the appropriate amino acids within the proteins, I won't get good quality nail and good quality hair in terms of the, the quote unquote thickness of the hair or the structural integrity of the cuticle around the nail. Having that as a background point. When we have an imbalance in between my dietary intake and my fuel utilization and my nutrient utilization to maintain body mass and maintain body tissues, one of the things that happens is we start seeing a change in hormonal regulators, the things that are going to regulate metabolism. And one of the things that happens is that we start seeing a change in the fat hormones, what we call adipokines scientifically. And the ones that are of importance that most people have heard about are leptin, adiponectin, adipocin, visfatin. But those hormones are going to be regulatory hormones for other hormones to come into play. And so what we end up getting is we end up getting this cascade of events taking place as I start to accumulate fat mass. And once again, it's not about what the person looks like in terms of their fatness. It's predominantly fatness as it relates to the visceral body fat. And so when I have an imbalance in between the hormonal signals due to nutrient balance issues, I start to accumulate visceral body fat. Now, this visceral body fat has secondary components within it in terms of accumulation of visceral body fat, which is why as we age, we tend to see an increased amount of visceral body fat, particularly with females relative to males, and I'm using the sociological terms here, in terms of male-female, as well as the scientific representation of the XX individual and the XY individual. And so the XX individual, the female, the woman, in terms of sociological identification, has a sensitivity to leptin hormones. And the leptin hormones are going to be regulating 
visceral body fat accumulation and visceral body fat metabolism. It's also going to be regulating subcutaneous adipose tissue in terms of what's referred to as white versus beige in terms of adipose metabolism. The white versus beige of adipose metabolism is the indication of how the fat cells, how the adipose tissue is going to metabolize all of the lipid droplets within it, as well as all of the accumulating sugars in circulation that are constantly in circulation regardless of how much sugar carbohydrates you're eating in your diet. When I start having swings in my leptin and in my adiponectin and in my adipocin and in my bisphatin, as well as within a couple other non-fat hormones, such as irisin, insulin, GLPs, androgens, testosterone, progesterone, DHEA, or adrenal androgen, as well as estradiols, the estrogen hormones. I'm going to start seeing changes in how much visceral fat is there. And because females, the XX biological, are more sensitive to leptin in their regulation for other hormones, particularly during reproductive age. As we start hitting what is usually referenced as menopausal time, we start seeing a change in visceral adiposity due to changes in estrogen, causing changes in leptin signaling, which causes a change in adipose accumulation, in particular visceral fat adipose accumulation. The visceral fat in terms of the fatness, when we start looking at fitness and fatness factors, the visceral fat is the quote-unquote bad fat. It's bad fat because it's going to trigger adipokine signals that is going to alter lipid metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism, and protein metabolism, as well as changing normal stress response, what we usually reference physiologically as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. That is what is my epinephrine, norepinephrine, or for anybody who's not in the United States, adrenaline, noradrenaline. And what is my cortisol levels in circulation, as well as what are my inflammatory hormones in circulation. What this does is this causes changes in other inflammation signals. And so when we start looking at some of the health issues that are associated with what we call type 2 diabetes, and I'll get to what type 2 diabetes is here in a second. When we start looking at other issues associated with type 2 diabetes, the retinopathies, issues with the retina of the eye, the nephropathies, issues with the nephrons of the kidneys, eye disease, kidney disease, as well as small capillary or small blood vessel inflammation leading to peripheral neuropathies, issues with the way in which the neurons are functioning, as well as possible gangrenous changes, changes within the peripheral tissues, the tissues of the hands and the feet. Combined with the neuropathies, the issues with the neurons, leads to changes in sensitivity and an increased risk for undiagnosed injury, ulcification, ulcers of the skin. It's those issues that tend to lead to the issues as relates to at least in the periphery, in the hands and the feet, the diabetic foot issues, the diabetic hand issues. We also have issues within the retina, the retinopathies, where we have the diabetic retinal issues. All of those issues are not about diabetes and they're not about sugar, even though that's the way in which we like to think about those issues. Those issues are about inflammation and it's about changes in 
reactive proteins within the blood causing clotting, inflammation coming from the immune cells that trigger additional clotting effects and additional inflammation within those areas and within the body whole that leads to a number of the other problems that we associate with type 2 diabetes. Okay, with that, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is a type of metabolic disorder that is associated with excessive glucose in the blood, excessive insulin in the blood, excessive insulin insensitivity or non-responsiveness of the tissues to insulin, and elevated A1C levels, where we have uh, the red blood cells and the hemoglobin molecule within the red blood cells that have been glycolate, have had glucose and sugar stuck to it, which impacts the ability for that red blood cell to function correctly. All of those things combine together to give us the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Now we're going to get a little historical perspective here. Type 2 diabetes used to be indicated as adult onset diabetes. Colloquially, it would be where we would talk, the older adult within the family would talk about having issues with the sugars. But once again, it's not about sugar. It's about stress and about inflammation that comes about due to excessive visceral fat accumulation. And that visceral fat accumulation comes about due to irregular hormone signals due to the imbalance between what is the nutrients that I'm consuming relative to the nutrients that I'm expending. Whereas type 1 diabetes we used to reference as the juvenile onset diabetes. And the juvenile onset diabetes would occur within childhood. And that is due to the pancreas, the organ within the body that's responsible for producing insulin, not being able to produce insulin. Another terms that we used to throw around is related to type 1 versus type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes was insulin-dependent diabetes, which means that we had to have insulin be injected into the individual in order to compensate for not having a pancreas be able to produce insulin, whereas type 2 diabetes we would reference as insulin-independent or non-insulin-dependent diabetes. And that's because the body was able to produce insulin still but the body itself was not responding to the insulin. And the reason why the body does not respond to the insulin is not because we're overloading the body with sugar. It's because we have so much inflammation taking place within the body that the cells themselves are getting two distinct signals. One signal says lots of inflammation, don't use the sugars, don't use glucose because we have to save glucose for the cells and the tissues that need glucose, neurons and immune cells. And then another signal that says, hey, there's all of this sugar, all of this glucose in circulation in the blood. We need to get that glucose out of the blood. Insulin start working, but the cells are getting the signals to say, we don't wanna use the insulin signals to get sugar into the, into the tissues because we need to save the sugar, the glucose, for all of those cells, the immune cells and the neurons to be able to function when we have high amounts of inflammation. And what ends up happening is that over time, those two combating signals lead to a reduction in responsiveness to insulin 
in skeletal muscle, in adipose tissue, and in the liver to insulin signals, regardless of how much glucose happens to be in the blood at any point in time. Because it seemed to come from excessive sugar consumptions, people would correlate, falsely correlate, the consumption of sugar with the onset of diabetes, which means that if I'm consuming large amounts of sugar, I'll have large amounts of sugar in my blood, which will trigger me to become diabetic. And that's not the case. When we do activity, we send out a whole bunch of signals, both within the cells that are active, as well as from other tissues within the body that say, get whatever sugar is free into the cells that are working because we need that sugar, that glucose, in order to do the activity that's at hand. When we exercise, we're going to be utilizing a host of different types of metabolites. There is one of these quote-unquote celebrity fitness personalities that is pitching one of these get fit quick, get fit quick programs that says that it's not about sugar, that you're going to use the sugar when you exercise and then you, when you eat, you're just going to take the sugar that you eat and it's going to turn into fat and you never use fat when you exercise, you only use sugar when you exercise and that is complete and utter bullocks. When you exercise, you're going to use the three principal macronutrients that we use for fuel sources, carbohydrates, lipids, and proteins to meet the energetic demand that is at that time during the exercise. And there is a continuum of preference that we have as to which fuel source we're going to use based off of how intense is the activity that I'm doing, how energetically demanding is that activity, and how long am I going to be doing that activity. In the continuum of energetics that we have, which is going to fall into how we can start to look at can we use some sort of prevention mechanisms through exercise, which falls into that conclusion about personal responsibility. Can I use exercise as a means to control the overfatness so as to prevent type 2 diabetes? And the way in which we have to look at this is we have to look at, okay, what is the energetic demand that I'm going to be using? Secondary to what is going to be the hormone impact of the exercise that I'm doing. When I'm exercising, regardless of how long or how intense that I'm going to be doing this exercise, the first bit of energy use and energy return, because what I have to do is I have to use fuels in order to get energy back. And the energy molecule that we use in the body is a molecule known as adenosine triphosphate, ATP. Whenever I start doing any activity, the first energy source I'm going to use, the first fuel source I'm going to use is simply going to be regeneration of the ATP. You can think of this kind of like your hybrid car where you get recharged by hitting the brakes on your car. Where I'm going to recharge the batteries when I'm slowing down. We have a pathway that's very similar to that kind of instantaneous recharge. And that is what's referred to as the creatine phosphate pathway or the phosphagen pathway, if we look at it physiologically and scientifically. That phosphagen pathway, where we're going to take ATP, do metabolism on it, break it up, use creatine and creatine kinase, the enzyme, 
to regenerate that ATP to allow me to do a very few seconds of activity. After that very few seconds of activity, the next fuel source I'm going to use is going to be my sugars, in particular glucose and fructose, through a process known as glycolysis. Glycolysis and the phosphogen pathway are an exhaustible pathway system. They're a pathway system that will exhaust itself, which means that we only have a very short amount of time that we can use the sugars in order to do exercise using only sugars, using only glucose and fructose. And that's it, about three minutes maximum at high intensity where we're only going to be utilizing the sugars, glucose and fructose. And so for this celebrity personality to go out there and say, oh, all you're going to be utilizing is the sugar when you're exercising and all you're going to do is replenish the fats when you, well, why are you going to be replenishing fats if you're not breaking down fats is one of the logical questions you have to ask this person. But the thing is, is that none of the things that we do is very short duration, very high intensity. Most of the things that we do as it relates to physical activity and exercise is typically multi-minute, more than three minutes in terms of duration, and is not at maximal intensity. Because of that, we're going to be utilizing other fuel sources. The principal fuel source that we will use when we're at lower intensities is lipids, is fat. Most of you who are just sitting around listening to this are using fat as your principal fuel source. Because I'm going to be utilizing both carbohydrates and fats during exercise, I have to constantly be replenishing the carbohydrates. I only have a very small amount of carbohydrate store in my body, about a kilogram total. A little bit more depending upon how you go about storing the carbohydrates in terms of glycogen. There is a talk that we did previously that looked at this carbohydrate storing and this glycogen storing, and I'll put a link in the description about that. Because I only have a small amount of carbohydrates available, what's going to happen is that I'm going to have to replenish those carbohydrates as I go through. And our liver is able to do that. Our liver is able to take glucose metabolites that are either coming from the cells that are breaking apart glucose or breaking apart fructose through glycolysis into molecules known as pyruvate or lactate. It's able to take those molecules and regenerate the glu glucose in a process known as the Cori cycle, or it's able to take glucose metabolites that come from amino acids and it's able to generate glucose so we can keep working, or it's able to break apart some amino acids within the skeletal muscle itself and put it into a little compartment of the cell known as the mitochondria so that we're able to do additional generations of ATP so we can keep working. Because the whole idea here in terms of the energetics of what's going on, the calorie issue, what's going on, is to get ATP back so that we can keep working. But that's only taking place during the activity, what happens is that as we are active, as we are exercising, as we are lifting weights, as we are running, what ends up happening is that we change the hormonal signaling taking place. The change in the hormonal signaling taking place is going to alter the way in which we're going to do metabolism long term. And this is how we can go about changing our overall level of fitness through changes in physical activity.
the changes in physical activity that are most prominent and most pronounced do not come from what is commonly prescribed as the quote unquote appropriate, the appropriate type of exercise for losing weight. And that's because the idea of losing weight comes from this incorrect idea about caloric balance. What we're trying to do with exercise is make two key changes. The first key change that we're trying to do is we're trying to change the anabolic signaling going on. We're trying to change the signaling from signaling of inflammation to signaling of growth. If I have large amounts of inflammation taking place, I inhibit, I block growth of tissues because the body is all about trying to get rid of whatever's causing the inflammation. If this is due to excessive levels of stress, if this is due to excessive imbalance in terms of nutrients triggering hormones to trigger changes in visceral fatness, what ends up happening is that we're unable to set up the hormone signaling to allow for tissue growth to take place. Until recently, and by recently we're talking about the last 20 years or so, until recently, the only adage that we used to give the person, and it's one of the things that kind of guided some of the bad recommendations that came into play as related to the personal responsibility conclusion in this prevention idea. And it's part of the societal structural issue. One of the things that we would only recommend is increase in endurance exercise, increase in what most people refer to as quote-unquote cardio. That is long-duration activity. And the reason why we would stipulate long-duration activity is because the longer I'm doing something, the more acute, the more very short-term, the energetic demand happens to be relative to something that is very short-duration, such as resistance training lifting weights. But the problem is, is that the endurance activity relative to the resistance activity doesn't change the hormones that are regulating the inflammation relative to regulating the growth. What happens when I start having high-intensity short-term muscle contractions, resistance training, is I start to change the way in which the cells respond to the hormones coming from the muscles themselves, triggering the need to grow the muscles to withstand the demand of the exercise session, as well as the energetics necessary to allow for rebuilding of the torn down tissues. When we have resistance training as our mode for exercise, what we do is we change the hormone signals and the change in hormone signals leads to an anabolic response that's going to increase metabolic activity in the fat-free mass, bone, skeletal muscle in particular, increase the use of fats in metabolism, break down more fat deposits, 
adipose deposits, lipid deposits, while also reducing inflammation signals. It's going to trigger growth as opposed to triggering inflammation. When I have an endurance stimulus, I have a change in fat metabolism. I have a change in fat utilization, but I don't have that same change in anabolic signaling, signaling in order to cause growth to take place. Both resistance exercise and endurance exercise will reduce stress levels. And by reducing stress levels will lead to reduction in epinephrine, norepinephrine, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and cortisol, which is going to help reduce overall inflammation. But without having that secondary signal to trigger growth, we do not have normalization of the tissue response with that normalization of tissue response leading to normalization of circulating levels of glucose with reduction in glucose levels, a reduction in a process known as gluconeogenesis, a reduction in glucagon signaling, a signal from the pancreas that says we need more glucose, that it comes with the inflammation signals, an increase in a hormone known as GLP. GLP is a hormone that has recently, for 2023 here, recently become kind of mainstreamed within the media due to the use of a GLP agonist as this new quote-unquote weight loss drug, even though if we look at all of the studies that are out there, the drug itself provides minimal weight loss independent of changes in nutrient balancing and changes in exercise adherence. So that is the crux of can we go about looking at preventing type 2 diabetes as relates to the personal responsibility issue. And the personal responsibility issue is really looking at how am I going to go about balancing my hormonal signals relative to my inflammation signal relative to my growth signal. And what these all these signals do within the person, within the individual, is it creates that continuum of fitness factors and fatness factors in which we have a competing continuum of events taking place. Where when I have an imbalance towards accumulation, low physical activity, high nutrient intake, I have an increased risk for disease due to accumulation of fatness factors. And the fatness factors, the overfatness that comes about with the metabolic issues is going to be due to increasing levels of inflammation, whereas the increase in fitness factors is going to come about due to a rebalancing of the nutrient intake versus nutrient expenditure and level of activity, level of exercise in particular, which is going to reduce my relative risk for disease. Now, what we have to do is we now have to look at a caveats here so that we can get rid of this oversimplification and this approach from a biased perspective. 
And that is the structural sociological issues. The structural sociological issues go hand in hand with the other two points that were raised within the article, which is poor health education and the cost for, quote unquote, living healthy. Part of the structural sociological issues comes about not due to what's happening within the individual, but it's what's happening within the community as a whole. When we're talking about the sociological factors, and I agree that there are sociological factors that come into play, as pointed out in the 2012 paper, we break it down into two parts, the familial factors and the structural societal factors, the community factors. When we look at the family factors that come into play, one of the things that we have to come that we have to look at, and this goes into the health education aspect, and part of the problem with the health education aspect is the bias that we have within the presentation of the information, where we're more apt to present how I was raised and what I believe to be true as being the correct means by which to obtain health through diet and through exercise, as opposed to how you might have been raised as what is the best means for obtaining health. And this is where we have to look at the cultural-based guidelines, what is culturally correct in terms of guidelines for eating, restrictions for eating, family ideas and ideals about who should be physically active, active, who should not be physically active, how to be physically active, when to be physically active, how to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, when to fast. If there are embedded cultural fasting periods, how to alter or how to change what we're doing at times of the year to match those fasting periods. But more importantly, and it goes into why we have to be very careful of these get fit quick schemes, place an un realistic ideal about body image. And this goes into cultural and familial factors as to what is the basis and what is the bias about what is ideal, what is beautiful, and what is healthy. And they are three distinct factors and the three distinct things. What is healthy may not be culturally ideal and may not be seen as culturally beautiful. And it has to do with not understanding and how we sell body image in our society and across societies. There is a fitness culture that is out there. And the problem is that the fitness culture presents an unrealistic ideal as to what body image should be and what a healthy body image should be and how much body fat an individual should have and where that body fat might be. Where we tend to ascribe body image as a correlative association to what the person happens to be as it relates to their overall health or their willingness to do things or their ability to be athletic in terms of what should an athlete look like versus what an everyday person should look like. There are a number of comments that you might hear, particularly as it relates to specific sports. One that comes to mind right now is baseball and the fact that the baseball professional does not look like the NBA player, the basketball professional. And that's because they're the ideal body image for those two activities are very different. It doesn't mean that one is more fit 
more athletic than the other. It simply means they have different body images. This becomes problematic when we start looking at these get fit quick schemes, because what they do is that they will market individuals who have the genetic predisposition to look a certain way, what we reference scientifically as the phenotype, that have a specific body representation of their genes that is only seen in a very small proportion of the population, which takes us into the societal things. The societal things we tend to talk about in public health a lot in terms of deserts. And we're talking about deserts, we're talking about what is the density of certain things relative to other things. One of the things we talk about is having a fresh food desert, particularly within inner cities, or having a green space desert. And what that is talking about is he's talking about, do I have markets by which I'm able to purchase food that we would call healthy foods, but quotes around the healthy. Do I have areas that are outdoor spaces that I can safely play in? A lot of times what we tend to do is we tend to associate these deserts with areas of excessive overfatness, And we do see within the epidemiology, these clusters of areas. These clusters where we have high amounts of overfatness associated with high density urban areas, but we also see the same type of overfatness in excessively rural areas, areas where we don't have deserts of play areas, deserts of recreational areas, deserts, deserts of park areas where we have green spaces. We have spaces where we can go out and play. A lot of times in the urban areas, we don't have the green spaces, but we have other places to play. We have other avenues for and by which we're able to be active. And what it's done is it's led people who study nutrition to specify that the overfatness issues within those areas is due to not having access to healthy, put quotes around the healthy, food options. The problem with that argument is that it's an argument that there is healthy food and unhealthy food, and food is food. The body cannot differentiate between one type of food and another type of food. We will societally deem some foods to be healthy and other foods to not be healthy. There is a caveat to that statement as relates to things that are metabolic and endocrine disruptors within the foods. We've talked about this previously. The toxins, the disruptors that we have within foods can cause changes within our metabolism, which can lead to increased overfatness and increased inflammation. The foods that cause that are the same foods that we find in the supermarkets, in the, in the markets where we buy food, and in the fast food restaurants. We make this very poor association. Between, uh, between eating fast food and the food being unhealthy, simply because it is fast food. Food's food. It doesn't matter what food we're eating as long as we're eating food. The nutrients are the nutrients are the nutrients. Ground beef is ground beef is ground beef. 
Chicken is chicken is chicken. Organic stuff is not any healthier than the normal stuff. It's a marketing ploy. Eating higher amounts of vegetables does not necessarily mean you're automatically going to be healthier than someone who doesn't eat more vegetables. Do we get certain types of nutrients from vegetables that we would not get from non-vegetables? Yes. But just because I'm eating more of those nutrients doesn't mean that my body's automatically going to be storing more of those nutrients. And it leads into one of the other problems that come into play as relates to the underlying root causes. And that is the general understanding of health and health education within our society. And it goes into the fact that we are more responding. We are more responsive. We are more enthralled and more willing to listen to the quote-unquote celebrity than we are to the actual expert, the person who actually studies the information. And part of that is because we as the studiers, we as the people who do the experiments, we as the people who spend a majority of our day in the literature, reading about what other people are doing, setting up experiments to retest conclusions that have been drawn, do a very bad job explaining what we do. We don't put stuff into quick, marketable pitches. We may not ideally look like the person that you would think would know all about this stuff. We are not the experts in the Photoshopping. We're not the experts in the video editing to make ourselves look better than what we are. A lot of the get fit quick schemes that relates to health that have always been here. There's nothing new about this. There's nothing new about trying to prevent type 2 diabetes. We want to lay blame on specific things. But the problem is, is that we can't lay blame on specific things without understanding what those specific things happen to be. And because we do not wish to fully understand or we choose to attempt to oversimplify the excessively complex nature of health, where we think of health as being random, as uh, someone stated on another podcast, that health is random. Health is not random. Yes, we fit somewhere within a normal curve where 95% of the population, that is the normal population, would be considered within the continuum of health healthy where we have 2.5% of the population on one end and 2.5% of the population on the other end within the ideal population, either being excessively unhealthy or overly fit. And the problem with overfit can also lead to issues as relates to health. When we start to delve into all of these get fit quick schemes, they're all selling a bad idea. And the bad idea they're selling is that it's about something that is not scientifically accurate. So what's not accurate as relates to the conversation we have about preventing type 2 diabetes, or more importantly, preventing overfatness, which is going to be the trigger for type 2 diabetes? The biggest misconception out there, and the biggest thing that seems to be the ideal as relates to this reversal is that it's about sugar in the diet. It's not about sugar in the diet. It's not about needing to be, quote unquote, low carb, 
It's not about needing to be vegetarian. It's not about needing to be high protein. It's the fact that you have to look at what is my nutrient need relative to my nutrient expenditure. Diet, if you look at the level of effectiveness for reducing diabetic indices and weight loss, in particular fat mass weight loss, is the least effective way that we have. Changes in diet are excessively ineffective relative to exercise modalities, endurance and resistance training, or a combination of diet and exercise, endurance and resistance training. Other fallacies that come into play as, as we look at these factors, as we look at these issues that tend to be, oh, try this, it's the most effective, it's the best way of doing it, is that somehow it's a very short-term method. It's something that if we teach you this, you'll be able to go about making the changes that are necessary for the long term, in which we tend to lay blame on the individual by telling them that they don't have the discipline or if they just did this without understanding two key aspects for the person that tends to be over fat. One, they are not choosing that. It is something that is not about self-discipline. It's about self-selection. It's about being given options that they would want to do because they would want to do it, not because they're being forced to do it. It's not about, oh, just follow my diet and my diet will lead you to health if you just follow my diet. Everybody's going to fall within a normal curve of responsiveness. And just because you happen to respond one way doesn't necessarily mean the same person is going to respond Everybody's going to respond somewhere within that normal curve. And what we want to do is we want to give the person options that they can select, that they want to select, so that they are going to choose a behavior that is better than the behavior that put them into the situation that they're currently in. Along with that, the idea about the ideal body image can and does lead to body dysmorphic issues for the overfat individual where they will be averse. They will not want to. They will stay away from specific things that would normally quote unquote trigger a behavior that would cause them to be overfat or that in some situations keep them overfat because they don't know a better way of doing it. They will go about not wanting to eat specific foods because they associate specific foods with making them over fat, where they don't understand that food is food because we don't teach them correctly about how to eat, when to eat, how much to eat. And when we do try to teach them, we tend to ignore what is regulating eating responses. And the fact that most eating responses that come about, come about with the same combination of signals within the brain 
that are associated with reward responses. And what we need to do is we need to change the way in which we look at behaviors in terms of reward and punishment, allowing the person to choose better options, allowing them to become healthier. It's not about what their body looks like. It's about their healthiness, their health status, as opposed to what the person looks like. When we start looking at the stats as relates to bidysmorphic issues, eating disorders, it tends to correlate and correspond with images that are shown within society and within media as to what the ideal person happens to look like. The problem is, is that the ideal person is not the healthy person. And in order to get to this quote-unquote ideal body, we have to unscientifically somehow reduce fat masses in specific areas, which you cannot do. You cannot quote-unquote spot reduce. And we have to somehow cause growth in specific muscles and only in specific muscles. And here's the thing, you cannot grow in specific muscles and only in specific muscles. The only way to do those two things is to undergo plastic surgery. If we want to improve on our health education, what we have to do is we have to start educating our educators into what is healthy and how to be healthy. What are the best means by which we can reach health? with the understanding that responses are on a continuum. We recently published an article related to this concept in which we looked at the biasing of the educators and how they present health information to school-age children because health and healthy lifestyles come about through learned behaviors that are entrenched and ingrained within childhood. We don't choose unhealthy lifestyles. We are taught unhealthy lifestyles. We are taught unhealthy lifestyles based on how we go about managing our diet, managing our physical activity, which is going to lead to changes in our physiology by impacting our hormones and our genetics. We learn unhealthy lifestyles through changes in environmental and familial factors within societal factors as to how do I go about managing my stress. Increased amounts of stress lead to increased amounts of stress hormones, which leads to increased amounts of inflammation. Increased amounts of inflammation triggers over fatness, regardless of total amount of fat mass, because it's gonna change the amount of visceral fat, not necessarily subcutaneous fat. We have to make whole scale changes in order to prevent type two diabetes. And the reason why we have to make wholesale changes in order to prevent type 2 diabetes is because the four conclusions that were brought about in this article, the need to have personal responsibility, the structural societal issues that prevent the ability to live in a cost-effective means for healthy living, and the poor, poor health education all collate around one idea. And the idea is, is that we present a biased approach to what it means to be healthy and who's at fault if health does not or is not obtained. And what we have to remember here 
is that the cost of healthy living is a societal thing. If we want to prevent type 2 diabetes, if we want to prevent, if we want to prevent overfatness, which is going to be the trigger for type 2 diabetes, then we have to change the approach to health from the ground up. And from the ground up, we're talking about from societal approach to what is healthy, to teaching what is healthy, to removal of biases from the teaching of health, to regulating the marketing of the Get Fit Quick schemes and the supplement companies that go hand in hand with the Get Fit Quick schemes. We have to understand that health is not random. It is a highly complex network of interconnected factors that involve the individual's physiology, hormonal responses, metabolic responses, and genetic responses to nutrition, physical activity, environmental stresses, psychological stresses that is going to regulate the level of inflammation relative to the level of growth where if we want to be healthy, we want to have lower levels of inflammation and appropriate levels of inflammation when inflammation is necessary to the stress, to an infection, or to an injury, but is not present continuously. The health issues that were raised in the article that are attributed to type 2 diabetes is the issues of metabolic disease, of non-communicable disease. That non-communicable disease is preventable and is treatable. It's preventable and treatable by changes in lifestyle. And the changes in lifestyle means the need to have proper education, a society that values health over treatment of disease, and understands the science of how the human body functions so that we can fight through the biases that we see from the quote-unquote celebrities and experts, I believe the students call them the influencers, that we are bombarded with on a daily basis. If we're able to get through the noise, if we're able to cut through the noise, we're able to obtain the health that we need in order to prevent the onset of overfatness, in which we know about two-thirds of the population at a whole, everybody within the population, about two-thirds of the population will respond positively to increases in exercise and modifications in diet to rebalance nutrient loads to appropriate levels of nutrient load without needing any other medical intervention. That response takes between eight and 12 weeks to become noticeable for everyone in the population with dramatic and drastic changes due to other physiological principles. You will see rapid changes in response to the new stresses in order to reestablish your stable, optimal, functional self, your homeostatic self, within the first few weeks of any new diet or new training program. If you do not make further changes, you will stop seeing changes. And so one of the things that everybody talks about is, oh, I started something then I stopped something because I stopped seeing changes. The reason why you stop seeing changes is because you stop making changes. The only constant that we can have in terms of improvement of health 
is changes in the stresses that we place the body under. We do not want to overstress the body, but we want to stress the body. And by stressing the body, we induce physiological responses. And the physiological responses, because we've placed the body under different types of stresses, will lead to improvements in health, improvements of performance. Reduction in inflammation leads to improvement in overall health. And the way in which we're able to get that improvement in, in inflammation, the reduction of inflammation, is by changing the cogs of health, changing the influences that come from society, come from the environment, come from our own physiology, which changes due to, which changes our overall body morphology, our body composition, that influences other changes in health behavior, which leads to improvements in overall health. Can that improvement come from switching from a animal diet to a high plant diet? Yes, it can. Is it the most effective way of doing the change? No, but it can come about. The problem with drastic dietary changes is that it can lead to other dogmatic changes and can lead to isolations occurring within the responsiveness and within the lifestyle changes where you may not be within the same social network that you may need to be in in order to see continuous improvement. Can we make these changes by simply changing our physical activity, changing our exercise? Yes. Is it as effective as causing a change in both diet and exercise? No. Once again, it goes back to the balance of the nutrients. It's not about caloric balance. It's about nutrient balance. If we simply look at the issue of overfatness and the issues of overfatness that relates to type 2 diabetes and diet and exercise and relates to calorie balance, we put an overemphasis on the energy and an underemphasis on the health behaviors. When we place an overemphasis on the energy and an underemphasis on the health behaviors, we allow for the falsehoods and the misconceptions about health to be perpetuated. Can we improve our anabolic responses? Yes. Do we need to take quote unquote supplements to improve those anabolic responses? No. We can increase by increasing physical activity, in particular resistance exercise, but we don't need supplements in order to increase that. In fact, most dietary supplements that purport the ability to increase testosterone don't actually increase testosterone. If we have this focus of diet as it relates to nutrient balance, as opposed to calorie balance, we're able to teach and able to use proper meal sizing. If I'm able to eat proper amounts of food, I'm able to make sure that my nutrient intake is going to meet my nutrient utilization. We have covered the nutrient balance in other talks. You wouldn't know if you're meeting those needs if you simply went off of the caloric balance of, I am using the numbers here of 2000, I need to consume 2,000 calories per day. I have consumed 500 grams of carbohydrates. I've consumed 2,000 calories. I need to consume 2,000 calories per day. I've consumed about 200 grams of lipids. I've consumed my 2,000 calories. 
Once again, if you do not look at the nutrient intake based off of the nutrient balance you and strictly off of the caloric balance, you miss out on what do I actually need in order to be healthy. If I look at the Get Fit Quick Schemes, the Get Fit Quick Schemes, it's not about how your body's functioning. It's about how your body looks because they misconstrue body image or healthiness. If I want to be healthy, I have to pick exercises and physical activity that I want to do. The more I choose a physical activity that I want to do, the more likely I am to do other types of physical activity. Even if I may not actually want to do that specific type of physical activity. And I make that choice, even though I may not want to do it, but because I see the value in doing it. And this goes into the more likely I am to select the activities that I'm doing, the more likely I am to do those activities without being forced to do the activity. So what's the take home message here? What can I say about can we prevent type two diabetes? We can. We can prevent type 2 diabetes, but we can only prevent type 2 diabetes by preventing overfatness, by preventing high levels of inflammation within the body due to an imbalance between nutrient use and nutrient utilization. We can prevent type 2 diabetes by preventing overfatness, by preventing high levels of inflammation due to excessive amounts of environmental and sociological stress. Can we prevent type two diabetes? Yes, but we can only prevent type two diabetes by preventing over fatness, by improving our health education, by improving our scientific awareness and our scientific literacy to be able to remove the biases within the recommendations. By removing the biases within the recommendations, we get increased self-motivated and self-monitored behaviors, which are healthier in nature, which reduce inflammation and allow for increase in health status. What we have to remember is that the type two diabetes issues is not about dietary intake of sugars or overall sugar in circulation. It's a chronic response to ever-increasing levels of stress and inflammation, which inhibits the ability for the body to correctly perform the metabolism to maintain proper health. Well, thanks for listening. Hopefully you got something out of the last two uh, podcasts related to can we prevent type 2 diabetes and what type 2 diabetes actually is. If you like what we're putting out, please make sure that you like and subscribe and share out with all your friends and family. Please stay tuned for more stuff to come related to issues of health, physiology, and how the human body functions.